On this episode of Ed Scoop's Cutting Edge Podcast from Scoop News Group, why now is the moment for web accessibility in higher education? This is Ed Scoop's Cutting Edge Podcast. Every other Tuesday, we dive deep with decision makers on what's next in higher education IT and online learning. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Like pretty much everything, web accessibility faced a turning point in higher education at the beginning and throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. During that initial crisis moment, staff attention was diverted to keeping education moving and making a very direct pivot to online learning. Now, with normal operations pretty much back, universities are at a pivotal moment and need to jump on the chance to make accessibility a priority. Jonathan Lazar is the executive director of the Maryland Initiative for Digital Accessibility and a professor at the University of Maryland. He, along with Chris Danielson, the director of public relations for the National Federation of the Blind, tell Ed Scoop's Lindsay McKenzie about how they feel about web accessibility right now. Right now, campuses are starting to make some changes, but it's really been a a slow process. Um, So it was really in the last, you know, maybe 10 years or so that university campuses started to realize that, okay, we need to focus on making all of our digital uh, technologies and content accessible. And I think campuses were starting to make some progress uh, and then backslid during the uh, COVID pandemic. I've done some research on this where a lot of universities just started uh, skipping over, let's say, their processes for um, accessibility. So they would start procuring software because they wanted it fast without checking if it was accessible. And so universities right now are sort of in in a... questionable place, we'll say, when it comes to digital accessibility. The leaders of the university are more aware of the topic of digital accessibility. They know it's important, but often they just don't make it a priority and they don't put in the structures and the processes that you need to um, actually have a successful outcome. So accessibility generally has gotten worse. Digital accessibility on campuses has gotten worse since the uh, COVID pandemic. Would you agree with that, Chris? Is that what you've heard from the students that the NFB works with? Yes, I think that's unfortunately true. There were a lot of, we heard a lot from students when the pandemic first started um, and continuing through it that, uh, to Jonathan's point, uh, universities and colleges, if they even had accessibility protocols in place, were kind of taking shortcuts. And there was even discussion at one time of, uh, accessibility requirements being waived. We fortunately managed to forestall that, but um, it was a real concern uh, because there was actually even some pushback from colleges and universities and other entities about uh, making things accessible given the uh, perceived emergency of the pandemic. And, and it certainly it was an emergency in a lot of respects. What I mean by perceived emergency is there was an argument out there that, oh, it's an emergency, so we need to be able to take shortcuts because otherwise nobody gets an education. Um, It was the typical tactic of pitting accessibility against other students and making this sort of argument that, well, gosh, we're in an emergency time. We'll get to accessibility when things calm down, which is often what we hear from uh people who are struggling with institutions that are struggling from accessibility. So, Lindsay, if you want some concrete examples of uh, what happened during the pandemic, um, I did a series of interviews with directors of digital accessibility on university campuses throughout the pandemic to get a sense for what was what's happening. And here's some of the examples of how administrations at universities handle this. 
at, at one university, the staff that normally does accessibility was reassigned to other tasks. So they did not have kind of the human capacity uh, that they normally would have working on accessibility, working on accessibility. Um, at all of the universities that I interviewed uh, the, the lead administrators um, on digital accessibility, there were these sort of bypasses, right? You know, you normally have all these procurement controls and at all the universities, they had kind of fast pass bypass of procurement where they said, no, we need to procure those technologies now. And at least in some circumstances that happen at every university where they want to pivot, they um, they bypass their um, uh, their procurement checks on accessibility. You know, in a few cases, the university said we're moving all the events online and we um, so what we need to do is then they actually some universities wanted to get captioning and ASL interpretation. And because they didn't really have any backup plans in place. Right. They couldn't actually find. An, um, a sufficient number of, uh, we'll say, consultants, you know, people who could jump in of, of sign language interpreters uh, and uh, for people who could do professional captioning. Um, they couldn't do that. They didn't have plans in place. And that was uh, one issue that I think the pandemic brought out in universities, that they had no pivot plans in place. If suddenly accessibility needs were going to rise, they had no infrastructure in place to deal with that. They said, well, what do we do? Right. So they really had said, well, we kind of take in requests as they come in and we deal with them rather than having a comprehensive plan. So imagine that we're going to have an increase in accessibility needs. They really had not had not planned for that. Um, and so you saw these same types of patterns occur at multiple universities, universities who, you know, when their business offices and kind of the offices students would walk in when they went from walk in offices to virtual what they do. They took all their forms, they put them on a flatbed scanner and scanned them as graphical PDFs, which is the most inaccessible way to do things. So, I mean, universities really struggled. And part of it is they really didn't plan ahead for accessibility. And part of that is that if you're driven by a model of, well, we'll deal with a request when it comes to us rather than strategic planning, um, that means you're really dealing with remediation and accommodation. You're not planning ahead. Yeah, if I could just add to that, we we refer to that as the accommodation model in the National Federation of the Blind. And what you really saw was the total breakdown of that model. It was never a good model. Um, we have always encouraged universities to plan for accessibility. But in a situation like the pandemic, that model completely collapses because all of a sudden, the demand for accessibility is much higher because you're moving your entire student population to online courses, including all of your students with disabilities. So the model just completely collapsed. There's something you told me, Chris, a couple of years ago that I think about quite often when I'm reporting on accessibility issues and I'm paraphrasing, but you said the more advanced technology gets, actually, instead of making things more accessible, it can shut more people out just because it's not done thoughtfully. And I, I feel like that is what happened. <laughs> is that a fair summary? I mean, it sounds like we all shifted to remote learning and, and, and tools and online stuff and just did it in such a way that people got shut out. Yeah, I think that's right. There was a sudden acceleration in the use of digital technology and it dramatically exacerbated, you know, all the problems you referred to earlier, textbooks and materials not being available on time and not being accessible. 
all of those were just exacerbated ex- exponentially. And then new problems were created because there was this rush that Jonathan talked about to imp- uh, to procure new software and new solutions. And so uh, no thought was given to uh, accessibility and everybody was just it, it was like a it was like a uh, it was like a panic. And in the panic, you know, in any panic, typically your most vulnerable people are the ones who get who get hurt. And that's what was happening in that context, I think. So expanding upon what Chris said, one of the challenges is when universities or any other entity says, "Okay, we're going to procure this. We're going to make it accessible later. This remediation model. We know from the research that remediating for accessibility is expensive, whereas born accessible approaches are not. And so it's not only that things were not accessible. If at some point the the university said, we want to remediate it, we want to fix it, we want to update it. So first of all, there's that delay in time where the students and faculty and staff with disabilities didn't have access to it. But there's also the fact that the remediation model is when accessibility can become expensive. And so anytime you hear this canard, accessibility is expensive, it's not. It's that often it's done the wrong way in a way that it's expensive because it's done using a remediation model. Remediation works for no one. Procuring and fixing it later when we have time works for no one. And it only uh, increases the kind of the stereotype of accessibility as being expensive. It's like if you build a house from scratch, right? If you build a house from scratch to make it accessible, it doesn't cost anything extra to make the door frames a little bit wider and the turnaround radius in the bathroom for a wheelchair user. But if you build the house and then you build it in, so it's built inaccessibly and then you say, I want to go renovate it. Well, yeah, then it does cost some money because you have to reframe the doors and you have to add a ramp in front and right. But if done right in the first way, the costs are almost nothing. And the same is true of digital accessibility. Right. So we always want to push towards the born accessible model. Don't build it or don't procure it if it's not accessible. Period. End of discussion. I wanted to ask you both about web accessibility standards and WCAG. Uh, I don't know how we say that. <laughs> WCAG 2.1, I believe, is the latest standard and a 2.2 is coming. This is considered the gold standard for web accessibility. Um, but I understand there are some limitations. So I'm curious, what does meeting that standard mean in terms of giving actually a a good experience for students with disabilities? I think it's important to think of WCAG as the floor, not the ceiling. Technical standards like WCAG are part of your overall accessibility strategy, but just saying we followed WCAG, we are done, is not the right answer. So using technical standards, again, part of the strategy, but it's really important to involve people with disabilities on your campus in technology discussions early on, right? And that means faculty, staff, and students with disabilities, all the various various communities on your campus, because you can follow technical standards and still can be really hard to use, right? And people can have uh, certainly needs that maybe are not included in WCAG, even though WCAG does cover a majority of disabilities. So it's really important to involve um, the the voices and the feedback of people with disabilities from the start using a born accessible model. From the start, include people with disabilities in deciding which technologies get used. Um, and, And by the way, another kind of 
thing you often hear is faculty say, well, it's my class. I can run it however I want. Right. And that's really uh, that that's a it's a misleading argument because the reality is that by giving accessibility to all of your content and technologies in a class, you amplify the voice and the impact of the faculty member. It's not taking anything away from the faculty member. It's empowering the faculty member so that their message, their knowledge, their teaching is available to all. So, so what I would add to what Jonathan just said is it's really important. One of the things that we really encourage in the National Federation of the Blind and in the agreement we've reached and, and endorsed is Somebody at the university or some group of people needs to be in charge of accessibility and they need to have real power. But one of their duties also has to be to work directly with students with disabilities and make sure that testing occurs when a procurement is made or, or even better when a procurement is being considered um, so that the testing is done any changes that need to be made can be requested of the vendor. And you sort of have that, um, that piece of it in place. So this is why coordination is really important. And it's also really important from the point that Jonathan makes about faculty. It's also really important for uh, there to be somebody in charge or some entity in charge at the university so that it can stay to faculty, say to faculty, look, this is the expectation. This is the criteria that you have to meet. Um, and if necessary, to provide training to faculty and staff on how to meet those standards. This is why this is so critically important. And one of the things we always emphasize is Somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody has to have real power uh, in the procurement process. And that's the way you get to accessibility. You don't just get to accessibility by everybody from a technological standpoint following a guideline. Great. Thank you, Chris. Um, I know you've said, Chris, that you have run into websites that say they are accessible but are not really accessible can you describe that experience and and what that what kind of problems you can run into well well sure um i mean a lot of times what you have on a website is that uh, you know technically everything's accessible uh, in terms of buttons being labeled in terms of in images being labeled in terms of forms uh, being, uh, you know, able to be filled out, all of those kind of things. What I would say that I typically encounter is a lot of websites that claim to be accessible. One, there are just user experience things that are frustrating. And going along with that, and, and also too, maybe, is that um, part of accessibility is really making sure that when a user takes an action that they understand the result of that action and that they understand when the action is actually taken and the result actually happens. And that's the gap. One of the gaps that I see most persistently is, yeah, I can go on the site and I can do all this stuff. But when I hit the button to add something to my shopping cart, I don't actually get confirmation whether it was added or when I hit when I submit the form, there's an error somewhere on the form, but all I get is the screen refreshing to the form again without any confirmation or any 
any alert telling me what error I actually made and what I need to fix. Um, this is a huge gap that I see a lot. It's just one example, but it's one of the most frustrating because you, you feel like you've done everything that you need to do, but you're not getting the result you want and you can't figure out why. I think that speaks to the importance of actually trying things out, right? And we've, we've right. talked about <laughs> leading from the top at higher education institutions. Um, but Jonathan, could you talk about how we can involve students in actually testing products and trying things out and maybe involving them in that procurement process or the design process if it's something being built internally? Absolutely. Well, I think every university should have an advisory panel of students, faculty, and staff with disabilities. I think, I think it's important to remember that, that often we talk just about students with disabilities, but there are also faculty and staff with disabilities who are using the technology as well. And it's always important to highlight that. I just, that's why I say generally faculty, staff, and students. Have an advisory panel or a board that works directly with the CIO or whoever else uh, has the responsibility for digital accessibility, right, to provide feedback into all those decisions. That's really important to have those voices and that feedback. And, you know, how do you determine if something is actually meeting their needs or how do you determine if there are technologies that people know have already been used at other campuses and have been problematic? So having those advisory panels, just like a number of tech companies do, just like a number of government agencies do. Um, I think a key point to remember is that we're not asking universities to reinvent the wheel and come up with new strategies that have never been tried before. We're asking universities to use strategies that have already been successfully used in the tech industry and in government. So for instance, this idea of we need to have students, faculty, and staff involved in feedback and testing, right? It would be great in the new regulations uh, that are on the way soon to have a requirement for that. But that wouldn't be something new, right? If you look at the regulations under the Air Carrier Access Act, right? The specific text is in 14 CFR section 382.43 C2. The following text, your primary website must be tested in consultation with individuals with disabilities or members of disability organizations who use or want to use carrier websites to research or book air transportation in order to obtain their feedback on the website's accessibility and usability before the dates specified in paragraph C1 of this section. So ideas such as requiring testing and feedback, right? These are not revolutionary new ideas. We, we are just saying, please apply the successful strategies that already have been used in government and in industry. Thank you for bringing up the regulation there. I'm curious, Chris, from the NFB's perspective, what you would like to see in that regulation regulatory update? Well, I have to say, um, you know, I, I didn't, necessarily get a chance before this interview to consult with our advocacy and policy team uh, as we record this podcast. Uh, it's important for listeners to know that we're getting ready for our national convention. But I think um, I think Jonathan is right. I think something like uh, we see in the uh, Air Carrier Access Act uh, could be very constructive. I also think that uh, there need to be, you know, just beyond regulations, there needs to be 
the establishment in the regulations or in relevant laws of technical assistance uh, for colleges and universities and for uh, other entities that are dealing with this so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, and that technical assistance is, for example, something that was put into the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, uh, which was proposed in the in the uh, most recent con Congress before this one, uh, and hopefully will be reintroduced again. Because one of the things is, um, it's really good to have a clearinghouse or a, or at least a, a resource for entities to be able to go to and say, okay, how do we actually do this? How do we actually implement it? And I think, you know, those are the, uh, that kind of technical assistance can also point the way to saying, um, okay, one thing you really need to make sure to do is that you're testing uh, against your accessibility standards with uh, people with disabilities. And I do think Jonathan is absolutely right that it is best practices for colleges and universities to have that as a component of their accessibility piece and to have those uh, advisory panels that work with whoever's in charge of accessibility. One thing I hear quite a lot from institutions is that they feel this is something when they buy technology that the vendors should be doing rather than them. Um, should it be both? Is the onus both on the technology vendor and the institution. Jonathan, could you speak to that? So I think the onus is on both. Um, start to start with, nothing should be procured that does not meet technical standards, right? Such as WCAG. Um, and so a great starting point, and this is one of my things I often talk about, um, which is that if you are procuring technology to university, you need to make sure that your procurement contracts include indemnification clauses. Right. And the indemnification clauses basically say that, you know, you're purchasing your university is purchasing technology from this vendor. Um, if your organization gets sued for excess because the technology is inaccessible, the vendor indemnifies your organization. Basically, the vendor is legally on the hook. That gives you a good starting point, because if the vendor says, well, whoa, hold on a minute, we're not so sure we're accessible. It's not a vendor you want to be dealing with. Um, so start with indemnification clauses, which put the legal risk then onto the vendor. But it's not okay just to trust the vendor. You also have to, again, involve faculty, staff, and students with disabilities um, in evaluating technologies and giving feedback and informing which ones are built, how they're built, which ones are purchased, um, et cetera. So it is on the university, but also the university has a lot of levers of control on uh, vendors. And you see when system level activities have taken place. So for instance, California State uh, University system, when uh, they had taken some actions, vendors pay attention when large university and university systems right, require accessibility. So it is important to bring this to the forefront and focus on it. Absolutely. I would just add to that, you know, that the, the university is is the entity that's legally on the hook ultimately. And that's uh, and that's not probably going to change. Uh, but what is true is that you can use indemnification and you can use the leverage that you have. And it's really important not just to take the vendor's word for it. Some vendors will be very honest and say, we're not sure whether we're compliant. Uh, others, because they want to sell their product and they're not even necessarily being dishonest, but they will say, well, you know, we have we, we, we've been assured that we technically comply and we have our VPAD and we have all this stuff. 
Um, but the reality is that they may not have tested it. Uh, they may not have done all the things that they need to do. And they want to sell a product, right? Uh, they want the university to sign the contract. And so, again, I think this is where it goes back to testing. That's really important. A lot of times, just when I deal with vendors as a blind person working for the National Federation of the Blind, I say, it's great that you say it's accessible. I would like a trial period for your uh, software or your product so that I can make sure it's going to work for us. And I think that's another piece of, piece that universities can do because they have that leverage, particularly if it's a big college or university system that the vendor really wants to sell to them. But the university has the ability to say, OK, but you have to meet our standards, what we think is important in order for us to certify you. Is uh, requesting that uh, trial period pretty easy to do in your experience, Jonathan? The most vendors willing to do that, give you access and, and let you test it out? Uh, so I would actually defer to Chris on that. Um, I will say that I, I frequently ask questions about accessibility. Um, right. So I will often ask vendors, you know, cause again, I'm in a, a little bit of a different role. So I'll say, you know, how do you know it's accessible? Who is involved, right? What type of testing did you do? Can you share the data? You know, I probe a little bit to ask questions about how do you know this is accessible? Have you involved, you know, all the things that we're talking about, have you involved disability communities in the process? And usually those, those uh, answers give me a better sense of how seriously they take accessibility. Yeah. You know, if you're getting a lot of, I, I would agree with that. If you're getting a lot of I don't know answers, um, then uh, or or or, you know, no answers to those type of questions, then that's a red flag. And that may be easier in terms of something that you're going to deploy system wide. That may be easier uh, asking those questions than trying to get a a trial uh, done, um, because in, in our position, sometimes like when I'm testing public relations software, I'm the person that, I, that has to use it in my organization. So it's pretty easy for me to get uh, in a lot of cases, not always. Uh, sometimes vendors are really skittish about this, um, not because of accessibility per se, but just because of security and things like that. And they don't want you to get the benefit of their of their whatever without uh, paying for it. But um, but, you know, if you don't. Uh, you know, so it, you know, it depends on how many users you have. And I think, I think fair to be fair, Jonathan's approach may be a lot better if you're dealing with a system wide thing that's going to be used by a lot of people. So, uh, I, I, you know, but I was just, uh, saying that to make the point of trust, but verify, right? Uh, just because a vendor tells you something is accessible doesn't mean that you can rely on that. Uh, when you make your procurement decisions and it's not going to be uh, it's not going to stand up well if you are determined to be legally non-compliant. Uh, if you, uh, you know, if you get to a place where somebody is challenging it and, you know, points out specific accessibility issues that you would have detected if you had verified what the vendor had told you. Chris Danielson, Director of Public Relations for the National Federation for the Blind, along with Jonathan Lazar, the Executive Director of the Maryland Initiative for Digital Accessibility. You can read more about each of them and web accessibility at edscoop.com and in links in today's show notes. 
Coming up later this year from StateScoop and EdScoop, the 2023 IT Modernization Summit. This year's virtual summit takes place on September 19th. You'll hear from the top leaders in higher education as well as state and local government on all things digital transformation. Join Arizona State University Deputy CIO Kimberly Clark and Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro and more than a dozen other top leaders across the community on September 19th for StateScoop and EdScoop's IT Modernization Summit. You can find registration links for the summit in today's show notes and always at edscoop.com. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a Scoop News Group production. Carlin Fisher and Adam Butler help make it happen, and the entire team contributes. Until next time, I'm Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.